Amen. Boy, it's good to be here. Thank you for the privilege of being here. You're wondering what this is. I'll show you in just a minute. <clears throat> but my name is Stephen Barnes. My wife, Sherry, she's back there somewhere. My oldest daughter, Michaela, is back there. My youngest daughter, Bailey, is back there. My son is with the grandparents this weekend. He went to church with them. But we are missionaries to the island of Guam. I'll just briefly tell you, Guam is over near the Philippines. It's a little island. It's 32 miles long and 6 miles wide. Not very big, but it is an important piece of property for the U.S. military. There are about 15,000 U.S. military on the island, Anderson Air Force Base and Navy Base Guam. Also about 150,000 Chamorro people, 25% of whom are Filipino, 98% Catholic. And that's our mission field. That's where God has called us. And we're excited that we could go to the island of Guam and present the gospel. And uh, by the way, <clears throat> it is near the deepest part of the ocean. The Mariana Trench is right next to Guam. And the deepest part of the ocean, you can take Mount Everest and put it there. And you still got about 8,000 uh, feet of water before you ever got to the surface. That's how deep it is. The Bible says to launch out into the deep, right? I'm just following scripture. No, my daughter and I were flying into Guam just last January, and as we were flying in, I was uh, thinking about the Mariana Trench and thinking about that scripture that says, my sins are buried neath the depths of the sea. Amen? And I'm flying over the Mariana Trench thinking, my sins are about seven miles down there. Amen? Close to Guam, though, is a small island of Rhoda. That's old Casey Cameron's sins coming up out of the water. Amen? <laughs> Anyway, I tried to get him set up front with me. He wouldn't do it tonight. Put me up there by myself. But no, God called us to Guam and we're thankful for it. I'll just briefly, I've got three prayer requests for you. Number one, I want you to pray for our U.S. military. We're breathing free air tonight because somebody was willing to put their life on the line. Somebody was willing to sign up and put their life on the line. We are breathing free air because of their sacrifice. Pray for our U.S. military outside the gates and outside every base and every military installation, every vice known to man is waiting on the military. Wouldn't it be good if there was a Baptist preacher with a gospel message that said, why don't you try Jesus? And that's what we intend to do right outside of Anderson Air Force Base. We've already got us a village picked out. It's 50% uh, uh, Filipino. It's a heavily populated area, and we're excited about going there. In fact, I'll tell you how excited I am. Three weeks from tomorrow, I'll get on an airplane and go to Guam. Amen. Yeah. Moving over there, and thank God for that. So number one, pray, pray for our U.S. military. I spent four years active duty Air Force, six years Air National Guard, and it's from that God gave us a burden for our U.S. military. Number two, I want you to pray for the Chamorro people, 98% Catholic. And they've got to understand that salvation is not in religion. Salvation is in a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. Two types of people in this world, those who have Jesus and those who don't. So pray for the Chamorro people as we give them the gospel. And then number three, kind of unique, I want you to pray for my wife because they have a snake problem on the island. They have what they call the Australian brown tree snake over there. They say it was brought over on the luggage after World War II. I don't know. I just know there's no natural predator on the island to keep it at bay. It keeps multiplying. They claim that there are 2 million brown tree snakes on the island. That translates into 13,000 per square mile. I told my wife they will be in the rafters. Please pray for her. We were in New Orleans the other day and a lady came out. And she said, Brother Barnes, she said, I lived in Guam for eight years, loved it. However, let me just warn you. Once a week when I would wash my clothes, I would go out to our utility room and I had to get the snakes out of the washer and dryer before we washed clothes. My wife passed out. We brought her back to 
Y'all please pray for my wife. No, seriously, that is actually a good prayer request. But I really want you to pray for us that we're able to go over there and do what God has called us to do. I'm not 25. I'm one of the older missionaries. I go to missions conferences, and I'm the old missionary there. And so our prayer is this, that God would give us 25 healthy years. Healthy years. I'd love to have 25 healthy years. My dad's 76. He poured concrete last week. Boy, if I can get that, I'll be in good shape. Amen? And so we really want to be used of God, and you need to be healthy. And so y'all pray for us as we do that. That's where God's called us, the island of Guam. They say you need to accomplish two things when you go into church. Number one, they need to know your name, and they need to know where you're going. We're the Barneses. We're going to Guam. Mission accomplished, right? Praise the Lord. Many people look at missionaries, and they think about the sacrifice of a missionary. Let me just ask you a question. Is it a sacrifice to serve the one that died for you? That's not a sacrifice. It's a privilege. Amen? Hey, let me just show you what I brought. This has nothing to do with the sermon, but it does have something to do with today. All right, this is a boxing glove right here, okay? I don't know, any of y'all keep up with boxing? Anybody know Manny Pacquiao, the boxer? Okay, I was over in uh, the Philippines uh, last four years. I've been over there, and I went to visit Manny Pacquiao, the, the boxer. He lives in General Santos City down in Mindanao. And so I went to see him, had a good visit. And uh, we talked about the gospel. Manny claims he got saved two years ago. His wife got saved, came to church with us. and She's a lieutenant governor there. And, his, and her mom and dad got saved, became members of the church there. And uh, his brother-in-law, uh, Ed and I, are pretty good friends. Anyway, I got me a boxing glove, and it's got his signature on it. All right, I only have one of them because the other one's with an evangelist friend of mine. If I can ever get both of them, they're going on eBay. But anyway, this is a real signature. Manny Pacquiao, the professional boxer. Here's how I know it's real. Number one, I was there when he signed it. Number two, it has a certificate of authentication. That certificate of authentication indicates that it is a real signature. I was there. I saw it. It has been authenticated because it is authenticated. It is real. Let me just say that again. Because it has been authenticated, it is real and it's valuable. People say, what's the big deal about Easter? I'm glad you asked. Authentication. You see, he came up out of the grave. He was resurrected. 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. If there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. If Christ be not risen, then then our preaching is vain and our, our faith is vain, right? You see, the resurrection was the authentication upon Christianity. Because he came out of the grave, it's worth something. There are a lot of boxing gloves out there with different signatures. This one has been authenticated. There are a lot of religions out there. I have visited the Grand Palace in Thailand. I've gone to the place where Buddha died. His bones are still there. I've been, to Hind- I've been over to India several times. And there's a- they worship over 100,000 gods. You can go to the tree where Mr. Buddha uh, actually got his inspiration. You can go to all the graves of all their so-called prophets. Their bones are still in the grave. Go to Mecca and see Muhammad. His bones are still in the grave. Their religion was never authenticated. But 2,000 years ago, on an Easter morning, on a Sunday morning, Jesus came out of that grave. I have something real. I have something that's worth something. It has value. That is what differentiates us from every religion in the world. Because we do not have a religion. We have a person, the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. That has to do with Easter. It has nothing to do with the sermon, but I like my boxing glove. Amen. 
So y'all make sure that gets, Brother Casey, make sure he doesn't steal that thing before we leave tonight. That thing will be on eBay, amen? Hey, would you take your Bible? Your preacher said I had three hours, so I've got to hurry. Here we go. Would you go to the book of Second Chronicles tonight? Second Chronicles. And I just want to be a help to the church tonight, amen? I just want to be a help to the church tonight. Actually, First Chronicles. And I want to go to a portion of Scripture that is really an unusual portion of Scripture. First Chronicles. Let's go to First Chronicles, chapter number 26. First Chronicles, chapter number 26. And I just want to give you two or three thoughts from an unusual verse of Scripture tonight. Now, before we read it, I want you to understand. <clears throat> hope I don't trip over this thing. I want you to understand this is an unusual verse of Scripture because of the location in the Scripture. It is in a listing of names. Now let me just confess my sin to you. Sometimes when I read through my Bible, I come to a section like this and I go through it pretty, pretty fast. I'm just being honest with you. I mean, those names are hard to understand. I, I don't know what they mean. Those names are long. My phonics is limited. So I just kind of skip through it rather quickly. Because of listening, and, and uh, you know, you do the same thing. You, go, you come to a portion of Scripture like this. But let me remind us that every word in this Bible is important. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeded out of the mouth of God. And I believe every word in this Bible is inspired. I have a copy of the King James Bible. This is God's inspired book. I have it right here. I believe every word of this, and I believe it's important. You say, well, what do you mean the importance of a name? Well, they sang it earlier. I'm glad to know God knows my name. I'm glad to know that my name has been recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life. So God's interested in names. There's many things we could say about that. But if you don't mind, would you please stand as we go to 1 Chronicles chapter number 26. And I want to look at one verse. Unusual verse. I was in Kentucky a couple of years ago and a preacher friend and I, we were discussing unusual Verses of Scripture in the Bible. And he mentioned this one to me, and he said, what do you think about this verse? And I said, I've read through the Bible a few times. I said, I don't recall ever reading it. And so we discussed it, and we got some ideas about it. But would you look at First Chronicles 26, look at verse number 18. Here's what the Bible says. At Parbar, westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. And you're looking at me like, this guy is crazy. And you, that might be legitimate. But the point is, let's look at verse 18 one more time. At Parbar westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. Let's talk about this verse and see if we can get some help tonight. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for being so very good to us. Thank you, Lord, for coming out of that grave. Lord, we're thankful that you uh, then took uh, your blood and you sprinkled it on the mercy seat of heaven. And Lord, uh, you sure are good to us. Thank you for that. And Lord, I pray that you'd bless all that's said and done tonight. Lord, we need the Holy Spirit of God to do a work among us. We desperately need you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I'm going to take a drink of this water if that's okay. Interesting verse. Now, when I first read it, I saw at Parbar Westward, Fourth Causeway, into it Parbar. I was thinking, golf is in the Bible. Parbar, right? The next time I go to the golf course, 
My wife said, where are you going? I'm fulfilling scripture. It's right there, 1 Chronicles 26, verse number 18. But I found this out. It has nothing to do with golf. It has nothing to do with the golf course in Jerusalem. But it is an interesting verse. Now, listen to me very carefully for a few minutes. You're going to find in the Old Testament, it was not unusual for Old Testament cities to be surrounded by walls. And immediately you're thinking, Jericho. I mean, if you've been in Sunday school very long, you've heard stories about Jericho. You've sung songs about Jericho. I mean, are these guys bodyguards? Is that what they are? Praise the Lord. Man, that's good. I feel better. Now, here's the thing. I mean, because Jericho was surrounded by walls. And by the way, it wasn't unusual in the Old Testament for Old Testament cities to be surrounded by walls. And you're going to find those walls could be 25 to 50 feet tall. They could be wide enough for two chariots to pass. If you study the walls that surrounded Babylon, they were so wide that six chariots could pass. Six-lane highway on top. So cities had walls that surrounded them, and it's for an obvious reason, for protection. Because on the outside, there was an enemy that wanted to come in, infiltrate the city, kill the inhabitants of the city. So they built and constructed these walls for protection. And I think we could all understand that. Now, I don't know about you, but many times as a preacher, I like to take Old Testament stories Old Testament events, Old Testament happenings, and I like to find some spiritual value because this is a spiritual book, amen? I mean, for instance, I think you ought to have some spiritual walls of protection around your life. I think you ought to have some walls of protection around your marriage. I think you ought to have some walls of protection around your children. I think there ought to be walls of protection around this church. I think there ought to be walls of protection around your life. Because the Bible says, be sober, be vigilant for your adversary. The devil is a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. And there is one who would love to destroy your life and your marriage, your family, your home, all that you have, and that is Satan. So you better build some walls of protection. But that's not the message tonight. Although we do understand that many Old Testament cities were surrounded by large walls. Now here's what's also interesting. When you study about the walls of protection, you'll also find a study on the gate system of the city. This is a tremendous study. We could be here for two or three hours, but let me just summarize a couple things about the gates of the city. For many cities, there would be an outer gate and there would be an inner gate. And in between the two, there would be an assembly area. That's why the prophet would prophesy where? At the gate of the city. The people would come and gather. The prophet would get the message from God. He'd deliver the message of God to the people of God at the gate of the city. A lot of things took place at the gate of the city. An assembly area. Business took place. Administrative work took place. It was Lot. Remember Lot? In the book of Genesis, the Bible says he sat at the gate of Sodom. He held an administrative position in that wicked, vile town. And that's what made God upset. And that's why he came after him. Because there's Lot, a just man, doing work inside a wicked city. So you'll find administrative work. Oh, here's a verse. I love this verse. Matthew 16, 18 says, <clears throat> Jesus is talking to Peter. He said, thou art Peter. But he said, upon this rock, referring to himself. He said, I, Jesus, will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus, not to a man. And he said this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Here's what he's saying. I'll build my church and the very administration of hell shall not prevail against the church. 
What a promise we got, preacher, that if we'll stay in this book and if we'll do what it was right and if we'll live right and live holy and try to do it as God's pattern tells us to do, we have a promise from God that even the gates of hell shall not prevail against this place. What a good promise. I'm losing all kinds of stuff out of my Bible, by the way. So you'll find a lot of things took place at the gate of the city. I'm already about to lose my voice. And so things happen at the gate of the city. Very interesting study. Matter of fact, it's over in the book of Leviticus that if a teenage boy, I look down here. How old are these guys right here? How about you right here on the end? How old are you? 14. I got a 14-year-old son. I preach this to him all the time. How old are you? 15. <clears throat> if a teenage boy in the Old Testament got out of sorts with his parents and became rebellious and refused to make things right, you know what they do that 14-year-old boy? They'd take him to the gate of the city and they'd stone him. A lot of things took place at the gate of the city. Amen? So it'd be a study that we could go through all night, but let me just condense it down to help us with the message tonight. The gates, some of these gates were elaborate. 17 to 20 feet wide. Some of these gates were 17 to 20 feet tall. We're not talking about an aluminum cattle gate. We're talking about something that weighed several tons. It was Samson that took the gates... To the top of the hill, under the power of God, he took several tons. That was a bad dude. I don't care what anybody says. But we're talking about some large gates. 17, 20 feet wide, 17 to 20 feet tall. Now here's what we know. This is for the message tonight. During times of duress, Nehemiah chapters 4 and 5, Hebrew tradition, Hebrew custom says this. During times of duress, the large gates had to be closed at 6 p.m. at night and they could not be reopened till 6 a.m. Now get this. 6 p.m. at night, the gates shut. They cannot be reopened till 6 a.m. The question is, how'd you get out of the city after 6 p.m.? What if you had to exit the city before 6 a.m.? What if you had an ally on the outside that needed in before 6 a.m. in the morning? How did they get in? How'd they get out? Well, I'm glad you notice. Can I use that door up there? Yes, sir. Is it right if I open that? Yep. If I walk up here, will this pick me up? We won't get this incredible feedback. Okay. Don't miss this. Y'all back there? 6 p.m. at night, the gates are shut. They cannot be reopened till 6 a.m. in the morning. How do people get out? How do people come in? Well, get this. When the large gates were shut... There was a small gate within the large gate. It was about the size of our doorway, maybe a little wider. One or two people could pass through it. You could get an animal through it. You could squeeze a camel through it. Some have even called that small door the eye of the needle. That's why the New Testament, the Bible says, it would be easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Does that mean rich people can't be saved? Are you kidding me? For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. It just so happens for some people it's hard for them to see their need. It's like squeezing a camel through an eye of a needle. I mean, a year later, they're still lost. That's tough, isn't it? So, the only access we have to the city is a small door within the large gate. From 6 p.m. at night till 6 a.m. in the morning, the large gates are shut. The enemy's on the outside. Everybody's safe. The only way out of the city, the only way into the city is through a small door 
within the large gate. But now, listen carefully. From 6 p.m. at night till 6 a.m. in the morning, that door had to be monitored. There had to be somebody on security. There had to be a guard. There had to be a sentry on duty. There had to be somebody to monitor the movement of that door from 6 p.m. at night till 6 a.m. in the morning. And it was their responsibility to make sure the enemy stayed on the outside and to make sure the people on the inside were safe and secure. Would you like to know who was responsible for that? Look at your Bible. Look what the Bible says in 1 Chronicles 26 verse number 1. The Bible says concerning the divisions of the porters. Oh my. You know who the porters were in the Bible? They were the doorkeepers. It was the psalmist that said, I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Amen. And that's my sentiments exactly. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. This is a listing of the porters. Look at verse 13. The Bible says, and they cast lots. As well the small as the great, according to the house of their fathers, for every, what's the next word? Gate. You find a listing of the gatekeepers. A listing of the doorkeepers. Look at verse number 20. Notice what the Bible says in verse 20. And of the, what's the next word? Levites. Let me divert for a second. I'm hurrying. Exodus chapter 32, you ought to read it tonight. One of my favorite stories in the Bible. And it gripes me to death because people think they've got to entertain and they think they've got to go to Hollywood to get entertainment for the church. Let me just tell you something. That book right there has got all the entertainment you need. There are some wonderful stories in that book. Exodus 32 is no exception. It is wonderful. Here, let me just give you the brief version of it. Moses has led the children of Israel out of Egypt. I mean, he's got a couple of million people behind him. So he goes to the top of the mountain and he and God are carrying on a conversation. Unbelievable story. Moses and God are carrying on a conversation. Down at the bottom of the mountain, Moses' assistant pastor. Do you have an assistant pastor here? You don't? (laughs) Praise the Lord. I was an assistant pastor for almost 20 years. My preacher gave me this scripture I don't know how many times. Moses is at the top of the mountain talking with God. Meanwhile, at the bottom of the mountain, Moses' assistant pastor, Aaron, the people get a little upset and they say, well, where's Moses? He's been gone a long time. Good night. Would he come back? And then you find, here's what Aaron does. He takes their jewelry and he fashions this golden calf. Unbelievable. By the way, it's a golden calf. It's pagan worship straight from Egypt where they had dwelt for 400 years. And then the next verse, the Bible says, they're dancing around this golden calf in pagan worship. Amazes me how God's people came out of Egypt with a miracle and now they're dancing around a golden calf in pagan worship. Got to be Baptist. (laughs) Meanwhile, at the top, God looks at Moses and said, you might want to go down and check on your people. And so Moses and his servant begin to descend down the mountain and about halfway down they hear a strange noise. We could preach on this all night because I'm going to tell you something. The music of this world is a strange noise to a child of God. He gets about halfway down and lo and behold, he looks and good night. 
God's people are dancing around a pagan calf. And the Bible says Moses takes the Ten Commandments and throws them on the ground and breaks them. The only man in the Bible to break all Ten Commandments at one time. That's Moses, the great leader. The next time you mess up, think Moses, okay? And then here's what he did. He drew a line in the sand, basically, and he asked this question. He said, who's on the Lord's side? And the tribe of Levi said, we're with the man of God and we're with God. We're with you. And they stepped over with him. That's how they got their job. Because God said, now you're going to be in charge of the sacrifices. You're going to be in charge of the temple work. You're going to be in charge of the tabernacle. You're going to be in charge of the spiritual work of Israel. Not only that, you're going to be part of my doorkeepers and my gatekeepers. That's how they got their job, by stepping up to the man of God. So here you find a listing of all those that are doorkeepers, gatekeepers, and workers of the temple. Look at verse number 18 again. The Bible says... At Parbar Westward, four at the causeway, and two at Parbar. I need you six right there. One, two, three, four, five, six. Can y'all come with me? Come on, guys. This is your job. Come on. What you find, verse 18, is a listing of those six men who are employed by God and the men of God to do the work of God to guard the city. Come on, guys. Okay, I need you and you. Go up to the top. Okay, come here. Right here, right here. What's your name? Spencer, Spencer you're right here. What's your name? Andrew. Andrew, you're right here. What's your name? Garrett. Come on, Garrett. Who's, you, who's with you? You're the big guy in the bunch. Good, all right. All right, you're right here. You're right here. Y'all just stand there. Y'all stand there and look important, okay? Can y'all do that? Now, look, what you've got are four men who are in charge of the causeway and two men who are in charge of that door, that gate called Parbar. You see, verse 18 is a gate. It's an assigned duty for someone. It's two men who are on duty from 6 p.m. at night till 6 a.m. in the morning, and it is their responsibility to keep the people safe. It is their responsibility to make sure that everybody gets a good night's sleep. It is their responsibility to monitor the movement of that door. Their responsibility to guard the gate. That's what verse 18 is talking about. Now let me briefly, and I say briefly and I mean this. Can I give you three lessons from this tonight to help us as a church? Number one, if you're a child of God, would you raise your hand tonight? Good to be saved. Keep your hand up there. Good to know your sins are forgiven. Good to know you've been justified in the sight of God. When he pulls out your record, Romans chapter 5, when he pulls out your record in heaven, he does not see your sin. He sees the righteousness of Christ, which has been imputed to your account. You're now worthy of heaven. Is that awesome? What a great thing. What a great God we serve. Raise your hand. You say, I'm going to get you now. All right, put your hand down. Here's point number one. If you're a child of God, this is deep now, bottom shelf stuff. Number one, if you're a child of God, you have been given a par bar and a sign duty that God expects you to be faithful to. Now you listen to me. You have a par bar, a place. You have an assigned duty. You have a specific task. If you're a child of God, our churches are filled with people. Yes, they're saved. Many of them are. They're on their way to heaven. But that's where their walk with God stops. That's where their assignment stops. But what they don't understand, you're a child of God. Now you have an assigned duty. 
You say, what is it, Brother Barnes? I don't know. Maybe your duty is to clean these carpets. Maybe your par bar is to play that instrument. Maybe your par bar is to sing in the choir. Maybe your par bar is to lead the singing. Maybe your par bar is to preach the gospel. Maybe your par bar is to go to a foreign field. Maybe your par bar is to run a church bus. Maybe your par bar is to get behind a lectern and teach a Sunday school class. I don't know. But if you're a child of God, you've been given a place and assigned duty from God. 1975, I lived in a little town of Clarkton, Missouri. I was five years old. My dad had been saved about three years. A preacher across the way, Brother Clifford Rice in Campbell, Missouri, called my dad in 1975. He said, Elmer Barnes, he said, how would you like to come over and work in our bus ministry? And my dad said, what is a bus ministry? And Brother Clifford Rice says, I have no idea, but a man just gave us five church buses, so we're going to start a church bus ministry. My dad said, this was his words, sounds fun, sign me up. So we moved from Clarkton to Campbell, and my dad took a church bus. My dad didn't know how to fill a church bus up, so the first Sunday, he got in that bus, and he began to drive through the neighborhoods about 7.30 in the morning, honking the horn. That's not how you fill a church bus up. That's how you make people mad. My dad ran that bus Sunday morning, then turned around and ran it on Sunday night. Then he turned around and ran it on Wednesday night. Here is how I grew up from five years old to 17 when I left. On Sunday morning, we got on the bus between 7 and 7.30. We drove to Kennett, Missouri, 25 miles away. That's where my dad's route started. We picked up kids. We picked up families. We took them to church. After church, we took them back home, get home about 2.30 on Sunday afternoon, grab a bologna and cheese sandwich, and in the summertime, put a cold tomato on it. Amen? Amen. Get back on the bus at 4 o'clock, pick up for Sunday night. After the Sunday night service, take them home, get home at 10 o'clock on Sunday night. Wednesday night, race home from work at 4.30. Jump on the bus because mom had supper and his clothes prepared. Run the bus on Wednesday night. Get home at 10 o'clock on Wednesday night. That was the life of my dad. After about 10 years, I went to dad and I said, Dad, how long are you going to run the bus? He said, God put me on it. God's never told me to get off of it. I moved, I went off to the Air Force. I called my dad when I was stationed in Grand Forks, North Dakota. I said, Dad, you still running the bus? He said, Son, God put me on the bus route. God's never told me to get off the bus route. For 38 years, my dad ran a church bus Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. Here's what he said. Son, it's my par bar, my place. What's yours tonight? What's your place? What's your par bar? Last year, I was up in Ohio, and I was at a mission school. We had 17 U.S. chaplains that are endorsed by the only independent Baptist endorsement agency of the United States. They endorse 17 chaplains in the military, and those military chaplains can only conduct a Baptist service, 17 of them now in the United States military. Yes, they have their hands tied. I understand the political correctness, but they will only do a Baptist service. I'm in the class with a captain from Fort Carson, Colorado. I'm talking to him. I said, hey, where's your home church in Fort Carson? He said, well, right outside there's the First Baptist Church of Peaceful Valley, a little independent Baptist church. I said, what is your preacher's name? He said, Alan Payne. I said, really? What's his wife's name? He said, Stephanie. I said, brother, hang on. I got to tell you a story. In 1977, little old town of Hawkeye, Missouri, right outside of Kennett, 
On a Saturday morning, I'm with my dad, and we knock on this little trailer. There was a white one and a red one. He knocked on the red trailer, and a little seventh grade girl came out. Her name was Stephanie. She got on the bus and got saved the next day. She kept coming, got baptized, kept coming, and grew in the Lord. Now she's a pastor's wife in Colorado Springs, all because somebody found their par bar. He said, I said, Dad, you're not going to believe this. He said, Son, you're not going to believe this. There are two pastors off that bus. There are now two missionaries off that bus. And over 20 people are serving God full time. Why? He found his par bar. What's yours tonight? If you're a child of God, you got a par bar. You have an assigned duty. And God expects that duty to be done. Number two, let me give you the second one. I've got to hurry because I'm out of time. Number two, here it is. Listen to me. Number two, God expects you to be faithful to your par bar. Newsflash, sir. God is not impressed with your intellect. Every once in a while you meet those super Christians. They know everything, but they never do anything. God is not impressed with your intellect. God's not impressed with your accomplishments. God's not impressed with your personality. There is one thing and one thing only that garners the attention of Almighty God, and that is being faithful to your place. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found perfect. No, that a man be found faithful. He's not looking for perfection. Praise God. He's looking for faithfulness. Faithfulness. Acts chapter number 7. According to the scripture, Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus is now sitting at the right hand of the throne of God. Amen. He is my advocate. He's my lawyer. He's pleading my case right next to God. Thank God for that. But in Acts chapter 7, there's a faithful deacon. His name is Stephen. And Stephen got to preaching. The people got mad, began to gnash on him with their teeth. So they took him outside the city and they began to throw stones on him. And as he's about to die, he looks up in the heaven and he does not find Jesus sitting down. But he finds Jesus standing up because Jesus has his attention on a faithful man of God. Some of you in this room, you want the attention of God? Be faithful to your par bar. That's how you get the attention of God. You say, well, Brother Barnes, what if I make a mistake? Welcome to humanity. Back in 1989, I was in basic training. We were in a building about this size. I was on the third floor. There were 55 of our guys in a flight. And we had, our, we had our bunks, we had our foot lockers, our wall lockers, all of it was inside there. And there was one main entrance into that barracks. And you had to guard that entrance 24 hours a day. There had to be somebody on duty 24 hours a day. And it was your responsibility to monitor that door. If a drill instructor came and knocked on the door, you would immediately go to attention and say, Sir, Emory Barnes reports is ordered... Could I please see some ID? He would slide his ID underneath the door. You would take that ID and you would match it to a list of authorized personnel on the wall. Then you would return his ID and then and then only would you allow access for a drill instructor. That is the procedure that you followed every time. And here's how they motivated you. They said, if you mess up on dorm guard and you allow an unauthorized entry, you have to go back to day one and restart your training. That's motivation to do it right because on day one, it's the biggest mistake you ever made in your life, right? It's two o'clock in the morning and Lance Hackett is on duty. 
Lance is from Tennessee. He's a little touched, okay? Lance, at 2 o'clock in the morning, made a grave mistake. He sat down. And when you sit down at 2 in the morning, guess what happens? You go to sleep. So now the drill instructor beats on the door. And here's Lance. He groggily gets up, half asleep. He walks to the door, never checks up, opens it up. Now the drill instructor's on the inside. And everybody's awake. He is screaming and hollering and saying things you can't say in church. It's bad. Poor old Lance. And about that time, Lance Hackett came to his senses. And he walks over to the door and he says, Sir, he said, the door jam's messed up. We need to get it fixed. And the drill instructor walked to the door. And when he did so, Lance pushed him through and slammed the door shut. Now the drill instructor's on the outside. We're on the inside. And that drill instructor begins to beat on the door. You better let me in. Sir, Evan Hackett reports his order. Could I please see some ID? You don't understand, son. When I get through there, I'm going to kill you. Sir, Evan Hackett reports his order. Could I please see some ID? It's too late, Lance. You're a dead man. Let me in. Sir, Evan Hackett reports his order. Could I please see some ID? The drill instructor goes downstairs. He gets other drill instructors. And he gets a set of keys. They come up. They force their way in. They surround Lance Hackett. It's 2.15 in the morning. We're awake because this is the epic moment we're going to tell our grandkids about. But here's what the drill instructor said. He said, Lance, you have messed up royally, but you have recovered well. Retake your position. We looked at him like, are you kidding me? A drill instructor showing mercy? A drill instructor showing grace? You've got to be kidding. But I am reminded tonight as a child of God that 1 John 1, 9 is still in the Bible. That if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That I serve a God who's rich in grace and rich in mercy. And the book of Psalms says He's ready to forgive. He has provided a way so you can be faithful to your parbar. Get down to an altar. Make it right with God and retake your position tonight. You have a parbar. Number two, God expects you to be faithful. Number three, we're done. Don't miss this. Here's the third thing. You better understand the importance of your duty. You ought to study the history when the Babylonians came into Jerusalem. They came into the city and they took the administrators of the city. They cut their heads off and put them on a wall like we would a deer head. They took others and they skinned them, placed their skins on the walls as trophies. Barbaric torture, horrific torture, unbelievable what the enemy did. Let me just tell you something. If you're not at your par bar, something bad is going to happen. Now you listen to me tonight. <clears throat> Our country's in a mess, but it's not Hollywood's fault. And I'm against Hollywood. I'm against their music, against their movies, against their methods, all that stuff, their motives. But I'm going to tell you, that's not the problem in this country. I'll give us a news flash tonight. I'm not crazy about our politics in Washington. I'm not crazy about our Supreme Court, our legislative branch, our executive branch, although I believe God has breathed a little bit of life into it. But here, let me tell you something. The problem in this country is not Washington, D.C. The problem in this country... The reason sin is so rampant. The reason that we've caved in to all the special interest groups and we've caved in to all the sin. The reason we're in a position we're in. God's people were given a par bar and they walked away from their duty. You say, oh, Brother Barnes, it was just a bus route. No, it was a par bar and you left it. Now the enemy's in. Oh, Brother Barnes, it was just a Sunday school class. No, it was a par bar. And that par bar kept the enemy at bay. Oh, Brother
a choir, just an instrument, just some other duty in the church. Understand, you are keeping the enemy out. Stay in your position. Oh, something bad's going to happen if you're not in your place. I'm reminded of what took place December the 7th, 1941. On the island of Oahu sat the Opana Air Station. The Opana Air Station was the ears and the eyes of Pearl Harbor. Anything that would fly within 300 miles of Pearl Harbor could be detected at the Opana Air Station. They had the latest equipment at that time. I mean, if there's something in the air within 300 miles, a blip would appear on the screen indicating that there was aircraft. The Opana Air Station would call Fort Shafter. Fort Shafter would identify the aircraft and give the following orders. That's the protocol they followed. December 7th, 1941. Two men are on duty at the Opana Air Station, Specialist Lockhart and Private Elliott. They're brand new to the place. At 7 o'clock in the morning, everybody went to the chow hall, but those two men, they stayed on duty because they really weren't supposed to get off duty till 8 a.m. They stayed. At 7.02 in the morning, an electronic blip appeared on the screen there at the Opana radar station indicating that there were aircraft within 300 miles of Pearl Harbor. They got on the phone and they called Fort Shafter and the phone rang for 11 minutes and no one answered. What do we do now? Suddenly, another blip appears on the screen indicating there are two waves of aircraft now within 300, 250 miles of Pearl Harbor. They get back on the phone. This time it rings for seven minutes. Finally, a secretary answers and she says, no one's on duty. They're at the chow hall. They said, we've got a problem. Find someone. She went to the chow hall and she found a lieutenant. His name was Kermit Tyler. Kermit Tyler came back to the Fort Shafter there and he began to discuss the situation with the two men at the Opana Air Station. And here's what Lieutenant Kermit Tyler said. He said, we are expecting our own aircraft at any moment. We have B-17s or B-24s coming in. What no one had told Kermit Tyler was this. Our own aircraft had landed 24 hours earlier. They were already on the ground. Kermit Tyler told the two young men, he said, it's our own aircraft. Nothing to worry about. Shut the system down. Go to chow. At 7.40 in the morning, they shut it down. They went to the chow hall. At 7.50, two waves of Japanese aircraft entered Pearl Harbor airspace. 20 Navy vessels were sunk. 200 aircraft were destroyed on the ground. And over 2,000 lives were lost because somebody wasn't at their bar bar. And that's a real-time illustration. But I'm going to tell you spiritually, we're losing our homes. We're losing our marriages. We're losing our kids. We're losing our churches. We're losing our country. Why? God's people aren't at their bar bar. That's right. Preach it, brother. Preach it. You left. You left. And because of that, our nation is going down the way of all flesh. It's not Hollywood's fault. It's not Washington's fault. It's not the special interest fault. It's God's people's fault. You say, why are you blaming on us? I didn't, God did. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven. God put the responsibility on our shoulders. You've been given a par bar. Be faithful to it. And you better understand the importance of your duty. Would you look at one other verse, the last verse of the chapter. 
The Bible says in verse number 32, the very end of the chapter, after a listing of all these names, the porters, the gatekeepers, and the Levites, here's what he said, the last two sentences or the last sentence of verse 32, for every matter pertaining to God and affairs of the king. Let me encourage you with this tonight. That Sunday school class is not just a Sunday school class. It's for God and for the king. That custodial work down at the church is not just custodial work. It is for God and for the affairs of the king. That bus you run, that song you sing, that job that you do in church, your par bar, it's not just an unusual duty. It's not just an everyday duty. It's for God and for the king. It's the greatest work in all the world. Find your par bar. Be faithful to it. Because if you're not there, something serious is going to happen. Every head bowed. Every eye closed. The altars are open. You say, I've made some mistakes. First John 1 John 1.9 is in the Bible. He has provided a way so that we can be faithful to our duty. God's not looking for perfection. He's looking for faithfulness. Find your par bar. Be faithful to it. And recognize the importance of your duty. Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd help us tonight. Lord, we desperately need you. May the Spirit of God move among us. Lord, we want to do something for you because it's for you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's all stand. The altar's open. I'll leave it to the man of God.